And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? My name is Adrian Plass and you're listening to Flame Radio. Hello, you're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My name is John Cheek and I'm very, very pleased and privileged to say that my special guest today is the Christian author and writer Adrian Plass. Adrian, thanks for speaking to Flame Radio. I'll get straight to the point. One of the most clearest memories of my life one of the most remarkable memories of my life was reading your autobiography and particularly chapter six of your autobiography, which I'll get straight to the point, was where you learnt that God is nice and he likes me. How did you reach that point in your life? And is it something you still believe in now? Well, I wouldn't recommend the way I reached it to anybody. Everybody has a very individual and specific experience, don't they? I mean, Christians do. For me, I've had an illness, a stress illness, and that had been very difficult. And recovering from that meant that I had to deal with quite a large component of the reason for the illness, which which was the church was driving me around the bend. And particularly the endless search for a God who is imminent and present and not trying to make people feel guilty and bad and small and stupid, which seemed to be some of what I was seeing. So in the course of recovering from this illness, I spent a long time in our upstairs sitting room down in Hailsham near Eastbourne. Just chilling, really. We wouldn't use that word. Just relaxing. I'd play a little bit of music. I'd say a couple of prayers, actually from the prayer book, interestingly, because they're nice and solid. Anglican prayer book. Yeah, Anglican prayer book. They were like pillars, little pillars. And also developed an awareness, or I thought I did, who knows who gets this right, but an awareness of God being quite nonchalantly and happily around. Instead of this incessant tension that people experience in their search for God, it was as though God was there and was saying, look, just take it easy, you know, relax, take it easy. And there were several things I did. I got a bike and rode that around, rather as I did when I was a child. And I developed an idea that, well, you said it, that actually God was much nicer than I thought he was. And very importantly, that he didn't just love me. I mean, you love people despite. You like someone because... And Christians suffer from this appalling disease of believing that they're not likable, but they are lovable. I think that's absolutely awful. The idea that God doesn't look at you, say, John Cheek, and say, I like you for these three reasons. I would like to somewhat change these other things in you. But I like you, and as well as loving you. And I think human beings feed on being liked. I, I certainly do, as you, everybody does. So it was a new way of looking at things. And we'd just come through the 80s, early 80s and 70s, where we talked about an awesome God and we sang songs about a God who was so big and so distant and so blinking fantastic that we didn't even have a foothold on him. And the idea that God was truly incarnate, that he became man, became little, so that he could be with us, was, what I suppose, what I learned in those days. Or that's what I thought I learned. And, and it is still very important to me. So, yeah, it was a very important, very important thing I learned then. As I remember you once saying that prior to that, your view of God was of this entity, which was something of a cross between an angry headmaster and a bank manager. And that, actually, in the end, God isn't like that. He's rather different. Well, God is actually rather weird, He's certainly not like a bank manager, although he could be like a bank manager. And he's not like a headmaster, although, again, he could be like a headmaster. But uh, interestingly enough, over the last few years, I've realized that God is actually not unlike the bank manager we used to have, who was very nice to us. <laughs> I feel a bit guilty about saying he's not like a bank manager. This fellow, we used to go along and we were always in debt. You know, we were young, we had no money. And we'd go and see him and Bridget would cry, which was always useful. And uh, I would look, try and look responsible and he would help mop us up. 
And I think that the truth that emerged from that for me is that, in that sense, God is like the best of the old-fashioned bank managers. As long as you stay in touch, something can be organized. When you run away or you hide and you think he can't be interested or he can't be wanting to do help me, well, you just got your back to him, you know. So just need to keep in touch. And I think anything's possible as long as you stay in touch, really. So, yeah, the negative side of that was the idea that God is always studying your life to see where the sin is and to work out how you ought to change and looking at your sin account and working out what you owe him and whether he can still put up with you. A ghastly, ghastly picture of God and the idea of a heartless headmaster who might expel you. I can't tell you how many people we meet whose major fear is that they'll be expelled, they'll be kicked out, and that when they reach the gates of heaven, if there are any, God will say, well, sorry, no, you screwed up back in 1999 and you're not allowed in. Rubbish. I mean, it's just rubbish. Uh, so that was prevalent then, and it's prevalent now. The idea that God is after us, he's not actually that nice. He's going to get us. And I think I shall spend the rest of my life, and lots of people are spending their lives, trying to make sure that that isn't the, the image of God that people have. For the well-known writer and speaker Adrian Plass, work-related stress and unresolved tensions within the church triggered a breakdown and subsequent depression in 1984. I first started to be aware that something was wrong. I suppose when I hit a level of tension at work that never quite eased. And uh, one of the problems with residential work with kids, which is what I was doing, is that there's quite a high level of tension anyway. You're waiting for one shift to finish and the next one to start. There's always a level of tension, but I found I wasn't losing any of it. This sounds very silly, but I'd started throwing litter away. I've always been careful about litter. I found myself throwing sweet papers on the ground, and for me that was most extraordinary. Those were the little things, and things built up bit by bit till I reached a level of tension and anxiety that was pretty well unbearable. The symptoms were pretty classic, really. Things like wanting to sleep whenever there wasn't anything that I actually had to do, which I think was a, a way of escaping from the tensions that I was feeling. An inability to deal with people on almost any level. And I guess most centrally, a sense of central wildness and randomness in my thinking and feeling. All the anchors, the yardsticks, whatever you want to call them, had kind of evaporated or drifted away. And I was rootless, floating, didn't know where I was, drinking a lot right at the center of this experience of mine was this scream to God saying, I want you to do something. I want some action in my life that is unequivocally from you. I don't want to read another book and say, now I understand because I read chapter four. I want to experience you. Fellow Christians reacted in a number of different ways. Some were troubled, as they still are when people are emotionally ill. Some people were wary and nervous. Some got angry because, for goodness sake, it's the Christian religion and God is in charge and you pray and it's all right. And if you don't pray and it's not all right, then where's their faith gone? What are you saying to them? In fact, of course, all you're saying is the same as I've got a broken leg or I've cut my finger. When you're emotionally stressed or you have a breakdown, in one sense, it's just the same. You're saying, I'm ill. That's all you're saying. A number of things helped me to uh, move out of depression. One was simply having nothing to do. That was extraordinary, quite extraordinary. There are very few times in life, especially if you're made the way I am, when nothing is expected of you and you don't feel guilty. So those two conditions very rarely come together. Oddly enough, I recall the day after the doctor signed me off work, very early on, I was in a pub in Eastbourne, sitting in the garden, and for about an hour I was in, well, the nearest thing to heaven I could think of. I had nothing to do and no one to tell me off. Very childish, but so it was. I began to write, which became a form of therapy, really. I wrote in an upstairs room. And in the springtime of the following year, our Japanese flowering cherry came out, this amazing explosion of pink just outside the window. And that, that tree at that time, was, for me, was a sort of symbol of life. 
crashing out. And all these creative thoughts and feelings. Uh, I don't wish to be unduly disgusting, but as though some tubes had been unblocked. It's very difficult to say how one would help people who are going through this sort of experience. What I would say, from my own experience only, it sounds trite, but you need a friend. You need a friend. You don't need a Christian friend. You don't need the Bible. You don't need any kind of contrivance. What you need is a friend. And for Christians, that should be easy, shouldn't it? They find it very difficult because they've got this evangelical imp sitting on their shoulders who's constantly saying, have you done this? Have you read a verse to him? Have you prayed for him? All these things. Forget it. Jesus needs to come to people who are in trouble like this in the form of a friend, with no agenda whatsoever. When the prodigal came back, the father threw his arms around him and said, I love you. No conditions, no conditions. Just be a friend.
listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My special guest is Adrian Plass. Adrian, a lot of your early work really seemed to focus on how we fail, how failure is a part of life, and how Christians certainly encounter failure as much as anything. But actually it's in those periods of failure, those times of failure, when actually we can encounter God, the sort of God who says, a broken and a contrite heart I will not despise. Well, that's absolutely right. We, as I've often said, we have a rather neurotically positive view of Christianity and Christians and the church. And corporately, we talk endlessly about how God is changing us and moving us and bringing us forward and all this stuff. And then we go to someone who we trust and we're close to and we say, talk about how rubbish it all is and how screwed up we are. And I think if God is God, I think he wants to be in that. He would like to be involved in those chats, not outside them waiting for you to resolve them, but right in it. So he's leaning forward on his chair and he's saying, no, go on, go on, tell me how you feel. And you tell him how you feel, and he says, oh, yeah, I think I get that. And, and then you explain a bit more. It's it's more like that, I think, or it should be more like that. And where we, British and I, have worked recently at Scargill House, we encounter many, many people who are in dark, dark places. And a major task is to break through the religious language and the stuff they've learned and the cultures they've been in mm. to get them to really talk to us about what's happening to them. But it's always a bit of a breakthrough when they do. So, yeah vulnerability, honesty. It's a bit demoralizing because we are taught that we move forward and upwards. I'm not sure that that means what people think it means. I think it's it's rather rather different from that. Certainly, Adrian, in many of your writings over the years, I've noticed the importance that you place so much on the truth, on telling the truth, on being true to yourself and true about different situations. And do you find that when you are helping others, other Christians, that perhaps maybe the most effective part of your ministry with your wife, Bridget, is actually getting through to the truth, telling the truth and helping others to see the truth about their own lives? It is partly, but there is one aspect of it that we have had to learn. Um, someone said on the radio recently something that encapsulated, if you want to help people, you want to counsel people, pray with people, you've got to keep one foot on the bank and one in the ditch with them. People don't respond too well to people who are in the ditch totally with them. You need a little bit of strength and a little bit of a feeling that there's something solid helping you, but you also need to know that that person is aware of the truth of where you are. That's a difficult balance to keep, I think. I think it's very important. But yeah, telling the truth. But even there, I mean, there's truth beyond truth beyond truth. There are some things you don't talk about because it's not helpful and it's not edifying and it doesn't really do anything for anybody. But broadly, yes, when people ask me a question, I answer it because that's how I am. And that is, that is more liberating than anything else I do, I think. And sometimes we see people not exactly melt, but just think, oh, yeah, that is true. Gosh, yeah. Why didn't I ever think it was all right to say that? So, yeah, the truth is very important, I think. And as Jesus so um, memorably said, it will set us free. And I think evidence is that that's absolutely right. And, of course, Jesus spoke truth. He taught truth, often through parables. They were a way of perhaps maybe hinting at or trying to illustrate much deeper truths. And I've often found with your writings and especially with your poetry as much as anything, you've been able to explore truths and communicate truth through the arts in a way that perhaps maybe is more effective than just bluntly speaking your mind. Well, I think I'm just following the example of, of Jesus as far as that's concerned. I mean, he never really answered a question directly or not many People said, what do you think about this, that or the other? And he said, well, let me tell you a story. And as we put it before, the parable keeps you talking at the front door while the truth slips in through a side window. That, I think, is the power of parables. They're stories about the ordinary in which something much larger becomes evident through the story. And the important thing is, when you read about Jesus and the way he worked, that he created space for people to make their decision their own. Occasionally he was very direct, but what he was saying with the parables was, look, you think about this, here's a story, take the content from it and what you think it means, go into your own space and think, what do I do now? How do I feel about this? 
that's the power of story, I think. I think we've lost it a bit in the preaching area. I mean, I'm not a preacher, really, but I think a lot of preaching still... The Bible says Jesus only ever told stories to the people he preached to the disciples, but the rest of it was all stories. So I think there's a fair reason to continue to do that. One of your own poems, which often sticks in my mind, is called And the Dream of Being Special which, although it was written really from the point of view of perhaps possibly a middle-aged woman, it was so well written as a parable that really we could all relate to that character. It really was every one of us, and the dream of being special floats away. Well, so many people want to be special, and so many don't think they are. And the church teaches that we are special, God loves us, we're all we're wonderful people, we're all beautiful inside. Most people don't feel that. Not really. But what they do have is the dream. And the dream, the hope, is given to them by God. And it's a dream that will only really be fulfilled, perhaps in heaven, I don't know. And perhaps it will get better during life, I don't know. But you've got to hang on to the dream of being special, because that is the gift of God. To just hold it, hold the dream, I am special. Not, I have reason to be vain, or I have reason to be um, think I'm better than others, but... There is going to be a place where God says, you, you are very, very special. There never was anyone quite like me. I'm the only me that you'll ever see. From the top of my head. To the tip of my toe Oh, oh, oh I'm special, you know There never was anyone like me or you Being ourselves is the best we can do We're priceless and precious For God tells me so Oh, oh We're special, you know We're quite unique A walking work of art And strong or weak We all have our own special place in God's heart We're different each one from the other, it's true God never repeats himself, never makes two Be happy with who you are, God made you so Oh, 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 you're special, you know We're quiet, you a walking work of art And strong weak We all have our own special place in God's heart We're different each one from the other, it's true God never repeats himself, never makes two we're priceless and precious, for God tells me so. Oh, 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 we're special, you know. Oh, 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 we're special, you know. One of your own poems is called And the Dream of Being Special Floats Away. Bridget and I usually do that poem together. We haven't done it for a long time. And it was really a, almost a pre-evangelistic ploughing of the ground because the problem with bringing people to faith is that very often you've got to break up what they think they know about Christianity or faith before you can plant anything. And when people think that is true, I want to be special, I don't feel special, 
it's not a bad place to start, perhaps to think about what that actually means and why you're not getting what you think you ought to have or what you think you've been told you should have. Adrian, you mentioned earlier on that earlier on in your own Christian discipleship, you had a big problem with the church and with the images of God that you rather got from the church. What were the problems that you encountered with the church and what sort of mistakes do churches Christians still make today? Well, I have to say that I was probably a bit of an idiot at the time as well, so we have to dilute all that a little bit. On the whole, these are never malevolent mistakes. They are the mistakes of hopefulness, really. They are human beings losing their nerve and tidying up where there should be no tidying up. That's really the problem. Because if you really believe there's a God, if you really believe that, then you cannot predict anything that will happen. If you're praying with people, whether you're engaged in a project, you cannot say, we know how to do this. You can organize it, plan properly, do it as well as you can, make sure you're, you do all the things you know you should do. But in the end, it's God who knows what should happen and how it will happen. And certainly in you know, praying with people over the last six years, we have learned to keep our hands off the result. Oswald Chambers, who's a you've probably heard of Oswald Chambers, a Christian writer, said we are not allowed to own the results of our own obedience. So uh, you get a story we often love to tell about Trevor Huddleston in South Africa, doffing his hat to a black lady, servant. Then he visits her little boy every couple of weeks for two years because he has TB in hospital. And the little boy is Desmond Tutu. So you doff your hat because your Christian principle is... I should be giving respect to this person, despite the fact that the whole of the rest of this country isn't. And out of that simple act comes an immense force in South Africa. So we're not allowed to know the end of that. And we're not allowed to know what God will do in the next bit. The, the mistakes come, I think, where we try to own it and to organize it and to decide what God will do. It's never been any different. I mean, one minute you've got Jesus drawing in the dust with the woman taken in adultery and coming up with a very clever way of rescuing her from what's happening to her. And next minute he's faced with the money changers in the temple and the disciples perhaps said to him, do you think we should have a little encounter group so we can explain to these people gently and lovingly why they're getting it wrong? And Jesus says, no, I've got a rope. I'm going to kick him out. I hate it. I'm not letting them do that. You cannot outguess God. And that is both demoralizing because we're human beings and we want to know, but it's also really exciting. But it, it leaves you in a bit of an odd state. We're not made for that. We're brought up to believe the better you behave, the more you'll get, the more you harder you work, yeah, the more you'll be given. You can organize things, you can get them sorted. And I suspect God is saying, no, look, you get the basics right. Make sure you turn up. I'll sort the rest out, and you can't predict that. So people have got so much to say about the gay issue, about sex in every manifestation there is, and people get very definite about it all. But if God is really God, every single person you meet is another case. It's not a question of saying, well, I, what I said last Thursday, I'll say today. Because God might well say, no, no, I don't want you to say that. Just shut up, just be quiet, and listen, and see what happens. So somewhere in the middle of all that, I suppose, is the answer to your question. It's a little bit vague, but that's because it is vague. I think being a Christian is more about what you don't do than what you do do, but we tend to major on what you do do. I don't want to say do-do again. <laughs> Adrian, in one of your writings, The Visit, that explored a lot of this theme and how the central character, which I think you played in the first person, was a very typical church-going good Christian who liked to get everything well-organised until the day when Jesus comes in person and, and pays a, a brief visit to his church and he finds that trying to organise everything and control everything in the light of the real Jesus, it just doesn't work. No, that's right. In fact, the visit was probably the first thing I wrote. Most people think the sacred diary was the first thing. In fact, it, it was the visit. And people sometimes say to me, does God tell you what to write? And the answer to that is unequivocally no. It would be very helpful if he would just dictate it to me as I sit there. But I mean, in some senses, being a writer is like being a greengrocer. You buy the best cabbages and you sell them at the right price. It's a craft. But the day when I wrote the visit, the first bit of the visit, Bridget and I were sitting in a, the sitting room and suddenly the whole story just filled my head. And I said to Bridget, can you get some paper and a pen quickly? And I just dictated it to her. 
and she wrote it down. And I was in tears, and I think Bridget was as well. It was just a very passionate awareness of the central truth of what would happen if Jesus came back and what he would like to happen. So that's the only time I've experienced that, really. But it was very important to me. I mean, it's, it's a slightly lumpy story when I look back. But the elements in it that are important, I think, are still important to me, which is, yeah, he would come back and he would take everybody out of church and say, we're going over to the pub over the road. And people, the organizer would say, well, but I thought we'd stay here. And he'd say, well, don't you want to be with me? And the reply of Jesus to everybody all the time is, but don't you want to be with me? When they say, well, we're going to create a church empire. Yeah, but don't you want to be with me? We're going to spend our time doing this. But yeah, but don't you want to be with me? Always Jesus is saying, don't you want to be with me? And there is always a cost to that. And he said there will be. Before our service commences, in the forthcoming week, Tuesday is the fourth Tuesday in a month of five Tuesdays. So, as is our normal practice, we shall be bringing the Wednesday meeting back to Monday and holding the Tuesday meeting on Friday. Please study these details carefully as we wish to avoid the most unsatisfactory situation that occurred on the last occasion when Tuesday was the fourth Tuesday in a month for five Tuesdays, when a number of folk attended all four meetings in the hope of hitting upon the right one by chance. I've been asked to remind everybody that the key to the side chapel, that's the side chapel, uh, is on the hook in the junction box just outside the vestry door. Uh, the key to the junction box is kept in the tall cupboard at the back of the church. And the key to the tall cupboard can be found in the robing chest, which is situated just outside the vestry door, immediately beneath the junction box. <laughs> Is, is held by Mr. Dunfney, who has kindly agreed to make it available for collection on the first and third Mondays and the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month. And on those months which actually commence on a Monday, uh, the key will be available on the first Wednesday, the second Friday, the third Thursday, and the fourth Wednesday of that month. The side chapel has been rather underused of late. <laughs> I really hope more folk will take advantage of this wonderful facility. <laughs> Friends, um, could I just say a word about communion? Um, those occupying the left-hand side of the rearmost block of pews, if you could make your way up the north aisle, through the door, into the passage between the church and the hall, turn right, just past the disabled toilet, <laughs> proceed round behind the altar, and approach the rail through the north door of the Lady Chapel. And you know, it really is impossible to overemphasize the need to remember that right turn. <laughs> Last week, Mrs. Cardio Fit, who is elderly and perhaps just a little confused, walked straight on out of the east door, along the high street, and eventually lined up for communion in the public bar of the Blue Cockatoo. <laughs> With consequences that I can only describe as grotesque. Happy to announce the new arrangements for after-church coffee are working extremely well. Uh, each Sunday we're adding to the number of folk who want coffee and actually manage to get some. <laughs> Finally, friends, I'm told that some of our folks, some of our folk have expressed concern regarding the complicated nature of our arrangements here at St. Yorias. Well, you know, friends, if you don't come and tell me, your vicar, what's troubling you, how on earth am I ever going to know? Hey, hey, Come and talk it over. I am, as always, regularly available on the 5th, 7th, 
and 12 odd-numbered days in each month. Whatever the problem, I'm sure we can work it out in time. Thank you, Glenn and Dan. Thank you very much. of your early writings you often talked about how churches that you'd experienced didn't really cover the cost didn't really follow jesus example in saying count the cost when actually the christian life is a very very expensive life not in terms of physical cash but in terms of the cost and what it means and what we have to sacrifice we really do need to count the cost don't we we do it's a difficult area though i'm beginning to sound like an incredibly judgmental pillar um (laughs) Yeah, it is true, but I'm just trying to tease apart in my mind what that actually means. The cost is really giving up. That is what you're called to do, to give up Christianity, which doesn't work, and follow Christ. Those are two very different things. There's a chapter in Sermons in Solitary Confinement, which is a Richard Birnbrand book. Richard Birnbrand was in prison for 14 years in Romania, Brisbane. And in one of them, in his cell, he writes about God saying to him, you must give up Jesus, which for a Christian is perhaps a little extreme, you might think. But there is a meaning in it. And the meaning is that there comes a point where what you do and say and how you behave is him. I don't mean I'm him, for goodness sake. But what you're aiming to do is not to keep referencing Jesus, but to allow the Holy Spirit to be whatever he wants to be through you. That cost, I think, ultimately, and I haven't paid it, I can assure you, is the cost of taking charge of your own life, making your own decisions about what is best for people. It's a huge cost. It doesn't mean you don't use your common sense, obviously, but the cost is something like taking your hands off it all. We were at Scargill the other day and someone said, if you wanted to bottle Scargill and take it somewhere else, what would it look like? And I said, well, the problem is, as a third owner to you, I think, it's not about what you do, it's about what you don't do. And Christians often want to be activists, and I understand that. They want to do stuff, and that's all right. But I just think you've got to be careful where you're coming from. We have a great advantage because we travel to so many different churches and we meet so many different Christians that we end up kind of just pulling back from everything. We don't tend to get involved in any specific church style of churchmanship, and I thank God for that because I don't want those kinds of shackles, really. But having said all that, I am very sympathetic with everybody. I really am. It's a hard road. Being a Christian is a hard call, and it always was going to be. 
Jesus said to Neil, if you think I've suffered, wait and see what happens to you, to paraphrase it. And it is tough. You're listening to Flame Radio on the 1521 Medium Wave and online. My special guest is the writer and broadcaster Adrian Plass. Just to confirm, the Scargill that Adrian mentions there is Scargill House, which I think is a retreat centre in Yorkshire. One day someone's going to explain to me why God allowed the book of James into the New Testament. It's such an annoying book. It's full of doing stuff instead of all that nice, comfortable theorising. For instance, the first few verses make the preposterous suggestion that we should regard all difficulties as pure joy. How are you doing with that? You guess what's happened? What's that, Bridget? The car won't start, and it looks as if the problem is going to be highly complex oh. and really expensive. Oh, so. fantastic. <laughs> hey, imagine that happening. On the same morning, we get a vast electricity bill. We can't pay. And did you know the ceiling in the front room's coming through? Ah, oh, I must say, I consider all these things are just pure joy. It is the most wonderful opportunity for us to practice perseverance through the testing of our faith. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think we'll be just about as mature and complete as it's possible to be after this little lot. I'll tell you what, let's ask God to give us wisdom to deal with everything. Yes, because he does give generously without finding fault, doesn't he? And we won't doubt, will we? Doubt? No. <laughs> We're not going to doubt. Not. No, because then we'd be like the waves of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, wouldn't we? <laughs> we no. Well, no, wouldn't expect to receive anything if we were like that, would we? <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course we fail. Of course we all fail. Bridget and I are followers of Jesus and we have been for years and years and years. And we fail and we get up again and we fail again and we get up again. The wonderful thing about God is there are a billion new beginnings available. So don't give up. Please don't give up. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, Forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in a rightful mind. In purer lives, thy service find. In deeper reverence, praise. In deeper reverence, praise. In simple trust, Beside the Syrian sea, the gracious calling of the Lord, let us like them without a word rise up and follow thee. Rise up and follow thee. Drop thy still dews of quietness Till all our strivings cease Take from our souls the strain and stress And let our ordered lives confess The beauty of thy peace The beauty of thy peace Through the heat of our desire, thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, O still small voice of calm. O still small voice of calm. Adrian, one last question. In one of your more recent books, you said that looking unto Jesus was the safest place you can be. I don't know if you can unpack that a little bit for anybody who's perhaps maybe listening to this, wondering what looking unto Jesus, or indeed what Christianity is all about. Well, I'm hoping to unpack it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I was trying to say it earlier on when we were talking So I sometimes describe myself as a Jesus-loving relativist, which I borrowed from somewhere. But what it means is that whoever I encounter or whatever situation I'm in, 
it's all relative. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what God will do. I don't know what Jesus will do. I'm just ignorant. I'm, I'm seriously, seriously lacking in most things. What I do know, what I have, is an ability to listen, an ability to stop talking when I ought to, which I've developed after many years of blathering on, and a profound interest in what God might do. And Bridget and I, when we work together and we pray with people, there is a real fascination about what God will do. What will Jesus do? You don't need religious language. You don't need all the paraphernalia. As we sometimes say, you know, if you take away the scaffolding, will it stand? Scaffolding can be music, can be prayer, could be all sorts of wonderful things, all good things. But when you take it away, what is there? And I suppose our dream in the middle of all our worry and sometimes our doubts and our fears and all the rest of it is that when the scaffolding is taken away, it will be very quiet. It will just be us and Jesus will say, it was always all right, you know. We've always been together, so take it easy. Which is what God said all those years ago to me. So it's a very quiet thing. C.S. Lewis said, if the world was perfect, you would look down and see a man reading a book in a garden. You wouldn't see a religious meeting. You wouldn't see people shouting and praising and the rest of it. I think sometimes those things are used as covers to prevent us from looking at our own loneliness and desolation spiritually and as emotional beings. And there's a lot of learning to do about that. Even as I say it, I realize we need to learn to be wholly who we are, not Christian version of what we are, but to be what we are and to let God work with what we are. And it's very challenging. I mean, you were interviewing me, and people always wanted me to say something about being a Christian or about faith. I don't know. I don't know. Because it's about somebody. It's not about something. And that somebody is the one in charge, and that's about all I know, really. And God is nice, and he likes me. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the It's all about you, Jesus King of endless words No one could express How much you deserve Every single breath I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart Cause it's all about 
you'd like to see more as well as hear more of adrian plass adrian at the moment does have a dvd available and the dvd is called yorkshire pudding featuring adrian and bridget plass as well in several scenes which are suitable for discussion groups and house groups and that dvd is available from various different places online and it's called yorkshire pudding and here's an extract of it yorkshire pudding with Adrian Plass. Hello folks, my name is Adrian Plass. I've been a writer for 25 years and uh, I've travelled all over the world speaking to groups of people kind of vaguely related to church. I really hope you're going to enjoy these little vignettes and scenes we've made. Oh, Adrian, I'm so glad I caught you uh, before you left. Um, you know that job that I had the interview for a couple of years ago? Oh yeah, ago? no, I know, I know. You've, yeah. you've had the interview. Um, yeah, you kindly said you'd pray for me. Yeah? Right. I knew him in the city that is called Egg-Shaz-Wurg, and The Holy Spirit doesn't give out wanting two kits when it comes to obedience. I tell you what, life is mainly a choice between what you don't want and what you really don't want. Yorkshire Pudding is a collection of short films that can act as thought starters for church services, group Bible studies, or discussions on a wide range of topics. Vignettes from the inimitable mind and pen of Adrian Plass. I am diseased with flippancy and have been since I was very, very small. And what I did a few years ago was to give it to God. Filmed entirely on location in the Yorkshire Dales, these short films are designed to get to the point in a humorous and heartfelt way. You don't. You know nothing You don't. You're the one who does You know nothing. You don't. at all. Nothing is wasted. Three little words. Nothing is wasted. And I suppose what it meant was that God puts his arms around everything you are. Not only does he forgive you, but he uses all the rubbish in your life as a sort of manure to grow new stuff. Each film is accompanied by its own study guide. Yorkshire pudding will definitely add flavor to your services, Bible studies, or meetings. And we won't doubt, will we? Doubt? No. <laughs> we're not gonna doubt. we're not. We had a, an interesting time putting these little vignettes together. We had a lot of fun. I did anointing. Did you? Yeah. Oh, you did. But right in the middle of it, we are followers of Jesus. We really care. We care about him particularly, and we care about the effect that these pieces we've put together might have on you. We'd like you to be inspired and helped and amused sometimes, and uh, maybe some of the things that we say will set you off into discussion, into thinking in new ways. Really hope you enjoy them. You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My name is John Cheek and my special guest today has been the writer and broadcaster Adrian Plass. Adrian, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, John. Lord, you said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished finished. Is it? I don't think so. Not until the funny little woman on the Friday bus means more to me than I do to myself. 
Not until I read aright the message of your pain-filled eyes that I must take the ones you loved and left behind to live with me as my responsibility. Not until I freely place my stock of cherished certainties like sad, surrendered weapons at your injured feet. Not until the public and the private faces of my troubled Christianity can meet and know they recognized each other when they met. Not until I know the names of more than half the people in my street. Finished? No. I don't think so. Not yet. Close the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios chat room. Green Door! We hope you enjoyed this program, which is under the copyright of Rural Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.